I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text found in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. With the recent news of renewed war between Israel and the Palestinians, and with the threat of war involving many more nations, even our own nation perhaps, I thought it might be helpful to outline from Scripture what God has given to us concerning the nation of Israel. Past, present, and future. Just a mini-series, just a few sermons on this, I think, important subject. It is most important, dear ones, that we know God's thoughts about Israel, even that we know God's thoughts about Israel over the thoughts of news reports, uh, documentaries, and defenders of Israel and defenders of the Palestinians. Most important, we know God's thoughts about this whole matter. I'm not discountenancing or discrediting history, credible history, but even history can become complicated. Even history can become messy to understand especially when it's interpreted through the lens of a person's or a religion's or a nation's 
worldview rather than it being interpreted through the lens of a biblical worldview, that is, God's worldview. Our triune God that's revealed in Scripture is the God of history. He has sovereignly ordained all the events of history to declare the glory of his power, the glory of his justice, the glory of his mercy, in which all history, past, present, and future, has meaning and has purpose that is realized in Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. All of history revolves around Jesus Christ. From the fall of Adam and Eve, which brought sin into the world, which brought God's just condemnation and death and all the miseries of this life into this world, God, in Genesis 3.15, made a promise to Adam and Eve and to all of us that he would send a Savior and a Deliverer who would defeat and who would destroy the devil and his destructive power. All of history, that is from a biblical worldview, is the realization of God's holy and wise pur uh, purpose to reveal and to bring forth his conqueror, his Savior, His Deliverer of mankind, Jesus Christ, the only one who can restore peace to mankind. Peace within our hearts, peace in our families, peace in the church, peace in nations and between nations. Only Christ can bring a true and lasting peace through his life and his death, through his resurrection, through his enthronement at God's right hand. Beloved, the true history of Israel is ultimately not about a nation, but is rather about Jesus Christ, who was brought into this world through that nation, as God purposed and as God promised. Israel was called by God to bring forth the Prince of Peace, who came into the world as true God and as true man. Understand that Israel was not chosen by God because it was better than any other nation. In fact, God says quite the contrary. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, it wasn't because they were mightier than any other nation 
greater than any other nation, but because God determined to set his love, his sovereign, his free love upon that nation. And he chose that nation out of all the nations that he could have chosen. He chose that nation simply because he set his love upon that nation. And because he made an oath and a promise to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 9, verses 5 through 6, we read, Not for thy righteousness, that is Israel's righteousness, or for the righteousness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land, that is the land of Canaan. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. And that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people, God says. God set his free, sovereign love upon Israel and chose that nation out of all the nations in the world to bear testimony throughout redemptive history to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was to come through the revelation that God gave to Israel, through the law that he gave to Israel, through the ordinances, the sacrifices, the covenants, the, the promises, through God's preservation of Israel. When many would sought to have destroyed Israel, God preserved Israel that the promise of the Messiah would be realized and brought into this world, the Prince of Peace. Sinful and rebellious as they were, God purposed to use even such a nation for his own holy purposes. It speaks of us as individuals. God did not set his love upon us because of some goodness in us, because of some righteousness he foresaw in us, not because of some faith he saw in us, because all he saw was rebellion in our hearts when he set his love upon us from all eternity. And as Israel was chosen to be a trophy of God's grace as a nation, so... God has chosen us as individuals to be trophies of his grace. Not because we deserve that, but because God is great. But because God is merciful. God called Israel to bear the light of truth and righteousness that all the nations, this was God's purpose, not for Israel to keep this message, this promise of the Messiah to themselves, but God called Israel to bear that light of this promise of the Messiah to all nations, that all nations might be brought as well to Jesus Christ. God's plan for Israel as a nation was not that Israel might 
ultimately rule over all nations was not that Israel might be distinguished from all nations in its doctrine, worship, and church government, for all nations, including Israel, will yet become Christian nations, flowing into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. That was the plan, to bring all nations into the church of Jesus Christ. And therefore we read in Psalm 72, verses 8, 11, and 17, He that is Christ shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations, including Israel, all nations shall serve him, that is Christ. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him, in Christ. All nations shall call him blessed. And I love this prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter 19, which speaks of that future age, the age of the Messiah, the age in which nations will covenant together with Israel to be Christian nations. This has never been realized at this point where Egypt and Assyria and Israel have covenanted with God to be his people as nations and covenant with one another in peace and love and in the truth to be God's people. But listen to this prophecy. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, that is Egypt as a nation, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day and shall do sacrifice and oblation Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord. That's a national vow, a national covenant. And perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated of them, that is, of the Egyptians. And shall heal them and that day. There shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. That is a highway of peace, a highway of friendship, a highway of commerce, a highway of Christian covenant between the nation of Israel and the nations that now pertain to Assyria. The ancient empire of Assyria encompasses now the nations of modern Iraq. Syria, Turkey, and even parts of Iran, Lebanon, and Jordan. But these nations will have a highway of peace, brotherhood between them. But that's not all. For we continue to read in this prophecy of what shall happen. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian 
into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians, that is, serve Christ. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Egypt, my people. Not just Israel, my people. Egypt, my people. As a nation. That's a covenant expression. That's the, that's the expression that's spoken throughout the Old Testament with regard to God's covenant relationship with Israel. God says, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, God says, the Lord says. The work of my hands, that's, again, an expression of God having formed Assyria to be his people. It's used of Israel. The same expression is used of Israel later on in Isaiah 60, verse 21. And then finally, we have Egypt, we have Assyria, and Israel, mine inheritance, joined together, covenanted together unto the Lord. See, that's, that's the goal. That's the end of God calling Israel. That's the blessing, worldwide blessing that the Lord intends by way of his calling of Israel. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself into the future of Israel in this sermon as we will be, in this sermon, focusing primarily upon uh, Israel's past in redemptive history. So as we, as we briefly summarize, and this is just, a, again, a very general overview of Israel's past, we're going to be focusing upon these time periods. Number one, Israel under the patriarchs. Number two, Israel under Moses. Three, Israel under David. And four, Israel from the restoration to Christ. So let us look at, that's basically, again, the, uh, an overview, trying to uh, give an overview in one brief sermon uh, about uh, Israel's past, but that's what we're going to seek to do in the remaining time that we have this Lord's Day. So number one, Israel under the patriarchs. God made a promise uh, to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin, after they disobeyed God and brought upon themselves and upon their posterity sin, condemnation, death, miseries of this life. God made a promise to Adam and Eve freely. Uh, theologically, it's called the covenant of grace that God made with Adam and Eve and with uh, those whom God calls into this covenant of grace. The promise was that God would send a savior uh, by way of a woman and that he would crush the head 
of Satan, that he would conquer all the enemies of sin. That promise of salvation immediately after the fall of man, that gracious promise, that promise of salvation was first carried in the line of, of, of Abel, but Abel, again, being a faithful man of God, before he could bring forth a, a line, before he could bring forth children, was slain wickedly by his brother, Cain. And so, at the very outset, we see Satan seeking to destroy and to bring to naught the promise of God by destroying Abel. But God raises up another son of Adam and Eve, Seth. And in the line of Seth, then, was the promise of that covenant of grace and that bringing forth of a Savior and a Deliverer, namely Jesus Christ, that continued through the line of Seth. He stood up, and his posterity, and through his posterity, embraced that glorious promise of God until the time of Noah, but even the line of Seth was corrupted. Even the line of Seth fell into sin, and there was, however, one of the members of Seth's lineage that found favor in the eyes of God, and that was Noah. The promise of Christ that was given to Adam and Eve seemed almost forgotten, destroyed when the Lord brought destruction upon the whole world by way of that flood due to its pervasive rebellion against the Lord. But Noah, as we have said, found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he and his family were preserved and the promise continued, therefore through the line of Noah. And after the promise or after the flood, that promise was embraced for a time, by the family of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. But once again, even within that faithful line of Shem, there began to, to be corruption, rebellion, idolatry that was engaged within the line of Shem. And it was, again, as if that promise that was made of a coming Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the one who would destroy the devil, was nearly forgotten once again. But God raised up another. Of his free grace, of his mercy, he raised up another, even Abraham. Abraham was shown a more clear revelation than had previously been given in redemptive history prior to Abraham, the promise was renewed once again. That's our focus in reading Genesis 17 as our text earlier. In the everlasting covenant, and that's what it's called uh, in Genesis 17, an everlasting covenant. 
which is also, again, a continuation of the covenant of grace in substance with that original promise that was made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the substance of that promise to bring forth one who would deliver his people from their sins was carried forth in the promise and in the covenant that God made with Abraham. There are three blessings that are promised to Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8. First of all, God promised a seed to Abraham. He couldn't have any children um, uh, with his wife, Sarah. Uh, uh, she was not able to bear children, and uh, they both thought that they were past the age of being able to do so, but God again gave the promise, and then he gave them a child, namely Isaac. And so he became, as we see in redemptive history, he became indeed the father of many nations. Israel, uh, Edom, Midian, the Arab nations through Ishmael, uh, again, all of these and many more uh, were nations that descended from Abraham. But especially, it was not... Uh, only a natural seed, but there was especially a seed that would come from Abraham that would bring blessing to the whole world. And that seed is Jesus Christ. That was, again, the most important part of that that promise that was made to Abraham was the seed being Jesus Christ who would bring peace, who would bring life, who would bless all the nations of the world. Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ, Paul says. Abraham was to become, indeed, the father of many political nations. But more importantly, this promise and this covenant that God made with Abraham indicated that he would become the father of of all who believe in Jesus Christ, the Father of all who believe. In Romans chapter 4, verses 3 and 16, we read, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, meaning the Jews, but to that also which is of the father of Abraham, of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so again, he's become the father of all who believe, whether those who believe in Christ out of uh, uh, among the Jews or those who believe in Christ 
among the Gentiles. He is the father of us all. That was part of the promise. And Paul again in Galatians 3.8 says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, that's us, through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to Abraham. The covenant that was made with Abraham, Paul says, was a covenant made in Christ. A covenant that was made in Christ. In Galatians 3 as well. It was a Christian covenant that the Lord made with Abraham. But secondly, another blessing, God promised Abraham and his seed the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan, which God did in fact give to Abraham's seed, Israel, when they entered into the land of Canaan uh, at the time of Moses and then under Joshua, did conquer the land and, and inherit the land. Deuteronomy 1.8, Moses says, Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. That is the land of Canaan. As to whether this land was given to Abraham and his seed as a temporary or as a permanent possession. We will have more to say about that in another sermon. I'm not going to focus upon that at this point. When we get to the point of talking about the future of Israel, we'll bring that up and talk about the land in particular. It is, however, here described as Again, an everlasting possession, just as the covenant with Abraham is described as an everlasting covenant. Third blessing, and perhaps the most important blessing in this everlasting covenant with Abraham, God promised Abraham to be Abraham's God. He promised to be his God and the God of his seed and his posterity. There is really no greater blessing than this, that God first gives himself to Abraham, first gives himself to us. And our response when God gives himself to us is that we give ourselves to him entirely, withholding nothing from him. God gave himself to us and he gave everything because he gave his only begotten son. And our response of faith and of trust in him is to give ourselves to him. That's this covenantal relationship that is found in the covenant of grace that is passed on from generation to generation from Abraham, even unto Christ, even unto after Christ, 
as Paul says, the same covenant has been passed on. The substance of that covenant that God promises, I will be a God to you and to your children. The sign that God gave to seal that gracious covenant at that time was circumcision, which covenant is the same gracious covenant as we've noted God enters into with us and our seed. As I said, this covenant is said by Paul in Galatians 3.17 that this covenant was confirmed in Christ. And those promises of salvation are made to us and to our children. Paul, uh, Peter says in Acts 2.39, for the promise is unto you and to your children. Same, same covenant of grace. That same promise made to Abraham of a coming seed to bless all the families and the nations of the, of the world was confirmed to Isaac, his son, was confirmed to Jacob, who became Israel, renamed by God Israel, and to his 12 sons. Even when Jacob and his family uh, moved to Egypt to be cared for by Joseph during a great famine. And while there in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob increased to such an extent that the Egyptians feared them and put them into abject, harsh servitude. Which brings us to the second main point, Israel under Moses. It might appear to an observer that at the, looking at the cruel conditions of Israel at the time of their servitude, bondage in Egypt and at the satanic plot to destroy the promise of God that through them would come the Messiah by killing all the male children that the promise of this coming Savior through the posterity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would never be realized. But Satan, dear ones, can never thwart the promise of God. Never. And God then raised up a deliverer at that time in the person of Moses to take God's people, Israel, out of Egyptian bondage by means of ten miraculous, devastating plagues brought upon the kingdom, the nation of Egypt. And that last plague, wherein God slew the firstborn of each family that did not have the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts, and God gave to them the Passover feast in order to remember, in order to keep alive the promise of the Messiah who was to come, the shedding of that blood of the lamb. The promise was not dead. The promise was kept alive by the Lord God. Even at this time, 
when God delivered his people Israel out of Egyptian bondage and delivered them through the Red Sea and crushed all their enemies and then brought them to Mount Sinai, wherein God again covenanted and promised to his people, and he renewed his promise that he had made Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He renewed his covenant and promise with Israel there and organized them into a, a, a church and into a state, giving to them as good laws to wisely govern them. And in many ceremonies and in sacrifices, and in feast days, and in the tabernacle, and in the priesthood, and in all of the laws that the Lord gave to them, God signified to Israel the coming of Jesus Christ to rescue them from all spiritual and moral defilement. These laws, Paul says in Galatians 4, 1 through 6, these laws that God gave to Israel were like a tutor, like a tutor to lead them to Christ. That was the whole point, to lead them to Christ. The promise was not dead. And after Moses died, God appointed Joshua to lead Israel in the conquest of the promised land in realization of the covenant that God had made with Abraham to give to them this land. The promise, the promise of the coming savior and conqueror, namely Jesus Christ in defeating all his enemies was seen actually in Joshua, which is simply the Hebrew form of Jesus. As Joshua conquered all the enemies within the land, so Jesus, is pictured in Joshua that he would conquer all of his enemies. After the death of Joshua, God led his people Israel through judges, like some of which were Gideon, Samson, and the last judge was Samuel, whom God raised up and used to defeat Israel's enemies, and to act as judges in giving unto the people God's will in difficult matters. At the time of Samuel, as I said, the last judge, Israel demanded a king to rule over them like all of the other surrounding heathen nations. They wanted to be like the world. Give us a king like all the other nations. It's not good enough that God, as king, is directly ruling over us. We want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like the world. God told Samuel that Israel had rejected him, had rejected him as God to be their king. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, and the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, God said. And then God gave them a king. 
God gave them a king. Hosea 13.11 says he gave them a king in his wrath, namely Saul. The people wanted to be like the world, so God gave them a worldly king. God gave them what they wanted. And it led to their defeat uh, by the Philistines, wherein Saul and Jonathan and other sons of Saul died. You see, we need to understand, just as there was before Israel, there was God as king, and there was Saul as king, and they chose Saul over God. So we have the same, so we have the same decision to make in our own lives every day. Because there are two kings, ultimately in this world, Satan, who most of the world has chosen to follow, and Jesus Christ. Satan has the popular vote of the world. Jesus rules by divine right. Satan doesn't rule by divine right. It's simply because the world has chosen to follow him. And we have that decision to make every day in our life. And particularly, we have that decision to make whether we're going to follow Christ as king or we're going to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we follow the world, when we follow the flesh, understand we are following the devil. Because there is no neutrality. There is no middle ground between following Satan and following God, following Jesus Christ. We're either going to follow one or the other. That's why Saul, or why Joshua says, Joshua twenty four fifteen, choose you this day whom you will serve. May we, with Joshua, respond. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then we come to the third period of time: Israel under David and the kings that followed him. God then graciously gave to Israel a king after his, that is God's own heart, David. Not that David was sinless, not that David was perfect. He was a sinner in the need of God's grace as well. But he had a heart after God. Israel had wanted a worldly king in Saul, but God again took Saul away and in his mercy and grace gave them a king after his own heart, from whose seed, that is David's seed, from whose seed would come forth a son, the son of David, the greater son of David, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty savior, the mighty king. And so we see here the promise of God is narrowing, narrowing to a particular tribe from which the promised Messiah would come, Judah, the tribe of Judah, and even to a particular family, David's family. Both of the genealogies of Christ in the Gospels, the genealogy in Matthew, 
which is Joseph's genealogy and the, and the genealogy in Luke, which is Mary's genealogy. Both genealogies connect Jesus to David and to Abraham. He is the fulfillment. He is the realization of all the promises and the covenant of grace that God made to his people, Israel. In Matthew 1.1, it says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does it mention that? Because he is the fulfillment. He's the realization. God gave to David the promise that from his seed would come forth a king who would reign upon his throne forever and ever in 1 Chronicles 17. And that was realized when Jesus ascended and was enthroned at the right hand of God after his death and after his resurrection. Notice the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 2.29 and following. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, that is, in the grave. Neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Now notice, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all Israel, the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, that is Messiah, sitting upon the throne of David in fulfillment of that promise made. And so the throne of David, we do not expect Christ to be sitting upon an earthly throne. Here upon the earth, he is reigning and he will reign in heaven as king of kings until all of his enemies have been put down. Even the last enemy, death, which occurs when he comes a second time and there is the final judgment and the final resurrection at that time and then the new heaven and the new earth. The United Kingdom of Israel prevailed under David and his son Solomon. Solomon who built the temple according to God's exact prescription. However, the kingdom of Israel was divided then under the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. The ten tribes of Israel 
went to the north uh, to the north went with Jeroboam the two tribes of Israel Judah and Benjamin went with Rehoboam and the household of David and Solomon to the south of the kingdom both kingdoms however both kingdoms rebelled against the Lord and against his promised Messiah through their idolatry even though God had sent to each kingdom his prophets to warn them and to say, come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord, come back to the promise which God has made unto us. And the prophets reminded them of the promise of the coming Messiah in their prophecies, that they might keep alive that promise. But they rebelled against the Lord, and Assyria conquered and dispersed the ten tribes of Israel in 722 B.C., while Babylon conquered and led the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin into captivity in 605 BC. Was the promise at that time, was the promise of a savior and king through the, through the son of David and the seed of David forever gone? Would God keep his promise? Even in these dark times of Israel's history, not even being in the land, being separated, being in captivity, the king and kingdom were gone. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was in shambles. Where was the hope to God's people who were faithful? At that time, there was only hope in the promise of God. The promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, to David, that he would bring forth a Messiah. He would bring forth a savior and a king, and God cannot lie. That was where their hope had to be. That's where our hope has to be, alone. And then the last period of time, Israel from the restoration to Christ. When the Medo-Persians under Cyrus conquered Babylon in about 538 BC, God moved upon the heart of King Cyrus to set God's people free in order to return to their land. And it was a remnant. It wasn't a large, it wasn't the majority that returned uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, but a remnant did return to the land in order to rebuild the temple and subsequently to rebuild Jerusalem. And through gifted leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple and the city were indeed rebuilt, even in the face of great opposition from Persian kings, from the Samaritans who surrounded them, and from the worldliness even of the Jews themselves who preferred to build their own houses and to see their own familial kingdom built over the kingdom of Christ. And the temple lay in waste for a number of years, not being rebuilt because the people were so caught up with just their own world and their own lives. But the hope of the Messiah, the promise that God had made to Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, to David, that promise of the Messiah was revived in the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah during the period of the Restoration. 
However, the restoration of the Jews to their homeland did not bring an end to persecution. For the Persians were then conquered by the Grecian Empire under Alexander, 330 BC. And from the division of Alexander's kingdom into four separate kingdoms, eventually, there arose in Syria a most cruel to tormentor and persecutor in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled from 175 to 164 BC, who sought to destroy the one true religion. That was his goal, to destroy the one true religion of Jehovah God, to end the promise, to bring the promise. That was Satan's goal, to bring the promise to an end by way of compromise on the part of the majority of the Jews who, rather than suffer persecution, followed the plan and the agenda of Antiochus. But God raised up, even though there was a great slaughter of the faithful, God raised up, and though there was the pollution of the temple at that time, God raised up even a remnant of those who were faithful and who stood with the Lord God. And God destroyed Antiochus by means of a faithful family called the Maccabees. And so the promise, the promise made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, originally to Adam and Eve, to the prophets was not dead, was not dead at all. It was preserved. The hope and God's people, Israel, was made alive once again. Then the Romans conquered and overtook the Greek Syrian dominion of Israel in 63 BC. And from the time of Babylonian captivity, 605 BC, forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans, Israel did not exercise a sovereign rule over itself. And when the promised Messiah was born in Bethlehem, in fulfillment of the promise made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise that was made to Moses in all of the ceremonies and to the people of Israel at that time, and it was made to David that he would bring forth a king from his family. Even one, Jesus Christ, was born king of the Jews. Jesus, the realization of that promise that was made from the very beginning. The devout Jews within Israel were in great expectation at that time and flocked to John the Baptist who declared he had been sent by God to prepare the way of the king. We'll leave off there and pick up, uh, God willing, next Lord's Day with not Israel past, that is, uh, in the Old Testament, but we're going to begin Israel present, beginning with the period of Christ until sometime in, in the future, still... Uh, this period of time of Israel present and then 
in another sermon or two, we will consider Israel and the future of Israel. But let me just conclude by saying, though this is an abbreviated history of Israel, let us understand that the history of Israel is important. And we ought to be very thankful for the history of Israel because it was to Israel God gave the promise of the Messiah to preserve, to protect, and he did so. Not because they were so faithful, but God kept his promise to keep the promise alive in those whom he called and chose out of Israel to do so. Paul notes the many precious treasures given by God to Israel in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, when he says, Who are Israelites? And these are the treasures given to Israel. To whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Notice, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But those many gracious blessings, and this is the application that I want to make to each of us. Those many gracious blessings that God gave to Israel did not save them. Did not save them. They had the blessings. It did not save them from condemnation apart from their faith and trust in the Messiah to whom all the blessings pointed to whom all the promises pointed apart from their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord they had the wealth the treasures but they did not receive them as a nation they did not receive them. In fact, we will see next Lord's Day, they rejected even Jesus, the greatest blessing. They crucified him, along with the Romans. They crucified him. They became proud, and they fell away from their triune God. Let each of us rejoice, certainly in the blessings of salvation, and in our exalted status as the children of God. But let us not fail to rest and to trust in Jesus Christ, who is the chief blessing, from whom all other blessings flow, through whom all other blessings flow. He was sacrificed for us in order to redeem us, in order to purchase our forgiveness, righteousness, everlasting life. Everything is found in Jesus. Even our needs in this life, in everyday living, our marriages, our families, this nation, the world is found in Jesus Christ. And when we turn away from Jesus Christ. What follows is chaos. We consume, we destroy one another. 
we rejoice in the precious promise given to Israel. We rejoice in the covenant of grace that was given to Adam and Eve and that was given to Israel, the substance of which was given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that was the substance of which was given to Moses, the substance of which was given to David, and which was realized in Christ. We rejoice in those precious promises. But a promise made, understand this, a promise made and a covenant made is not a promise received and a covenant received. God can make promises. God can make covenants. But unless we, by faith, receive those promises, trust in Christ, receive that covenant of grace, rest in it as our very own, then we, like Israel, will fall into destruction. That's where Israel is today, under the judgment of God. Due to their rebellion against Jesus Christ, we'll talk more about this next Lord's Day. Let us not follow in her footsteps. Let us receive the promised and realized Messiah Jesus Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do bless thy most holy name and thank thee for thy word, for thy covenant, thy promises that are made in Christ from the very beginning. We thank thee for the history that thou hast given us of Israel. Lord, we thank thee that, that thou did preserve through that nation, Lord, the promise of the Messiah, not because of Israel's faithfulness, but because of thy faithfulness. And Lord, we pray that now that the Messiah has come, that we would not cast him aside, that we would not choose to follow Satan as the Lord and King of our life, but that we will follow the Lord Jesus, that we would not follow the world or the flesh, for this is how Satan misleads us, thinking that we're not following Satan, we're simply following our own desires, but that is to follow Satan when we do so instead of following Christ and his word. Our Lord, we thank thee uh, that thou hast uh, given to us the lens of a biblical worldview to understand these truths. And may we cherish and treasure them. May we reflect and think upon them. And may we not cast them aside as worthless as trade them for porridge uh, when indeed these promises are worth everything we have in this world more worthy than anything in this world. Hear our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.